Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. My name is Jack, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'd like to welcome all of you to what I am sure will be a wonderful day of AA. So good morning to you all. I would like to read the purpose of AA and the purpose of our being here. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and to help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, or organizations, or institutions, does not wish to engage in any controversies, and neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help the other alcoholic to achieve sobriety. We have with us today, for the invocation, the Reverend Joseph King from the Mount Hermon Baptist Church. Reverend King. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We give thanks this morning for this privilege that we have to be here. And Father, we thank thee for the power that thou hast given us and has shown in the lives of so many here this morning. Father, we thank thee for the speakers that have come to speak, giving testimonies of how they have overcome. And Father, we pray that you would just guide and direct each one this day and also tomorrow that many more might be inspired that they too can overcome uh, alcoholism, that they too can give up drinking, that they too can live productive lives. Now, Father God, and direct each one who had a part on the program. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Keeping in mind that the tradition of anonymity is the spiritual foundation of our program of AA, if there are any members of the news media, either press, radio, or television present, we ask that they respect this tradition. We wish to thank all of them for their kindness and consideration in the past, and to remind them if they wish to quote any speaker or anyone at this conference, they use first names and last initials only and leave our anonymity here in the fellowship of AA.
In AA, we have 12 clearly defined steps which are our guidelines to sobriety and happiness, and they are as follows. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Our speaker today is a friend of mine who I met last night, but they're... But to me, there are no such thing as strangers in AA, but just a tremendous amount of friends that we perhaps have never met. And I had the privilege of meeting my friend Barry last night. So I'll turn the meeting over to Barry L. from New York. Good morning. My name is Barry, and I'm a dropout from heavy drinking. Notice I said heavy drinking, not social drinking. I was a failure as a social drinker, but not from want of trying. I tried for years and years and years. Before I say anything else, I would like to say that you don't know it, but from up here it's a very impressive sight to see wall-to-wall drunks. Especially on Saturday morning. You remember what Saturday mornings used to be like? As Bill O reminded me a while ago, there was a time when many of us at uh, 10.15 on Saturday morning were sitting on the bed faced with a great important life decision. You put on the left sock first or the right sock first. And it's quite different to see all of you out there. I've been uh, asked I love AA. They don't ever tell you to do anything. They make rather gentle suggestions. You know that there is no conspiracy involved the first time somebody makes a suggestion. But by the time the fifth person has made the same suggestion, you begin to wonder. 
It has been suggested to me that I say something, some things here this morning that I said in uh, some other times recently in Atlanta in August, in North Carolina last month. And so I'm going to do that, which means I'm not really going to, uh, not really going to talk about my drinking very much. Before I do anything else, I also want to thank the host committee and all these instant friends. I love that expression. I think AA really is instant friendship. Just a little hot water and we're all friends. I want to thank you um, uh, for the honor of being here and for the hospitality. I thought from last night's meetings the conference was off to a wonderful start. I'm sure, knowing a little bit about AA, there are some people who don't agree. There always are. Conferences, as they understand it, are something different. (laughs) But I want to point out that if there's anything wrong with this conference, you might bear in mind the caliber of the committee that's running the thing. Drunks. (laughs) Drunks. <laughs> and lady winos, I'm told. So what can we expect? I want also to um, issue a word of sympathy, and that word is particularly for one man in this room, Jerry, sitting over there, way at the end of that distinguished assemblage. The note of sympathy to Jerry is this. Jerry does a wonderful job, I don't know how many of you know it, does a wonderful job of putting together AA tapes, which are sent all over the world, a great number of people in other parts of the, of the world, not only loners but in groups, have absolutely no contact with AA except one or two people around or perhaps none at all. And Jerry does a beautiful job for our general service office as a volunteer putting together these tapes for these people. And my expression of sympathy to Jerry is that he's having to hear the same thing again and must be the third or fifth time he's heard it. But we're very grateful to Jerry, and I'm very grateful to all the people that make these tapes and send them around. Um, Whenever one of us young, pale-faced, whining kids around a kids at 27 you know we'd had very happy childhoods for the first 27 years of our lives Um, but when one of us said something stupid like I don't think I'm an alcoholic Battleship Annie would give us a little sample of her a sympathy kindness understanding and love she would fix her beady gaze on you and say tough titty And then she would explain, you didn't come to A because you have diaper rash. <clears throat> I didn't either. Although sometimes I have a great number of infantile complaints, I'll tell you. Um, I joined A in 1945, January 1945, and, the, and as soon as I joined, I found out one fact which has remained true all the time. Other facts about A have not remained true, thank God. We're a great deal bigger. 
than we were. All kinds of changes have happened, and I'm delighted about all the changes. However, one fact has not changed. I discovered that all AA members can be divided into two kinds, and I happen to know they're both kinds in this audience. A great number of you arrive at AA, you sober up just like that, and you never have another drink again as long as you live. God bless you. Others of us are more patient about our recovery. <laughs> and so it, um, so it was with me. I stayed sober the first year, and then I drank, and then I sobered up and stayed sober five years, and then I drank again in 1951. I had my last drink, as far as I know now, uh, in 1952. And um, that's... Um, an important fact to me, but of course it doesn't matter to anybody else, the, the significant fact to me is that I don't yet feel like, although I've been around AA this long, I have been sober the first year, and then I drank, and then I sobered up and stayed sober five years, and then I drank again in 1951, I had my last drink as far as I know now, uh, in 1952, and um, that's um, an important fact to me. But, of course, it doesn't matter to anybody else. The, the significant fact to me is that I don't yet feel like, although I've been around AA this long, I, have not, I don't yet feel like an old-timer. I don't know when you get to feel like an old-timer. I know when you get to be called one. You can be called an old-timer after three months, especially if you're visiting an unwilling 12-step case. He can call you all kinds of unkind names. But... Um, I'm not going to, um, since I'm not going to talk about my drinking, I'm going to talk mostly about sobriety. Not that I know anything about it. Um, I don't know how it happened to me. It did happen. It was not anything I did. And I'm going to try to explain some of the things I think that happened when I first came in that managed to keep me sober that first year and again for a five-year period and then more recently. Um, I said I don't know anything about sobriety and how it happens, which... Uh, Reminds me of lunch I had with a young man last summer. He's a frightening young man, only 22 years old. He has two Ph.D. degrees. The first one is in some sort of uh, astronomical physics or physical astronomy, and I don't know what the other one is in. And we were having lunch, and he told me that um, he had recently been hung up in a small airport uh, waiting for a plane while he was on his way to an uh, astronomical congress to read a paper. And during this time, he happened to see in the airport uh, a priest who was also waiting for a plane. There was no one else around. They had a long time to kill. So my young friend went over to the old padre and said, um, introduced himself, said he was on his way to a, to a congress and he was going to read a paper. And he said, I'd like to, why don't we get to know each other? We have to kill some time here in the airport. Besides, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about religion. I don't have any. I'm an atheist, said this young man. I don't have anything against religion, you understand. On uh, Sometimes on Christmas, my wife and I go to church, and I don't mind if the kids want to go to church picnics and dances and things like that. I have nothing against religion, but listen, I really, now that there's nobody around, I really would like to ask you a frank question, since you don't have any of your parishioners around. Tell me the truth, man to man. Don't you think you can sum up all religion in the golden rule, sort of do unto others as you would like for them to do unto you? Well, the old padre smiled and said, I think that's very interesting. I'm, uh, I happen to be on my way to a theological congress, and I'm delighted to get to meet a bright young man like you, an astronomer. I don't know anything about astronomy at all. I have nothing against it. 
I occasionally helped my children, or used to help my children when they were young, go out and look at the Big Dipper. I don't have anything against astronomy. But there's nobody else around. Tell me the truth. Don't you think you can sum up astronomy in twinkle, twinkle, little star? (laughs) And that's about as much as I know about sobriety. I'm now going to talk about my drinking for one other reason, and this is an embarrassing reason. I found out just a few years ago that when I'm talking about my drinking, telling my drinking story, I lie a lot. (laughs) It was very embarrassing. I was speaking at an AA banquet, and I was telling one of those deliciously funny stories that we all love so much in AA, one of those delirious things about suicide. You know, it was a happy occasion. We didn't tell any sad stories that day. Um, and I happened to be telling a story of a drunken incident, and just as I was about to tell the punchline of that story, I happened to catch the eye of a man sitting in the audience and realized, oh my God, that never happened to me, it happened to him. <laughs> well... That's true, and um, his, it was the kind of story that could have happened to me, and I discovered I go around sort of borrowing other people's stories, so I'm not going to talk about my drinking. It's kind of dull anyhow. But during that first year that I stayed sober, there were specific things going on that obviously kept me sober, and I repeat, I had nothing to do with it. It, it always has amused me to, when an al- a non-alcoholic says to one of us, I think you people are so wonderful because of what you accomplish, as if we accomplished something. I don't know that it feels like an accomplishment. It never has to me. It, it just always felt like a blessing, uh, a blessing that just arrived, not anything that I accomplished. But I'm beginning to think that it arrived through the means of AA people, and specifically the way AA people acted. When I came into AA, the movement was in 10 years old. This is in 1945. No one had written down anything except the 12 steps in the big book. We had not written down yet. No one had written down or even thought about Well, Bill was thinking about them, but he hadn't written them down, our 12 traditions. And yet it seems to me that the traditions are something or other that were already being acted upon the first year, and I think these are the things that kept me sober. For example, my life was saved um, in one sense by the fact that the AA members who were there when I got there had been paying attention to our first tradition. I never remember the words of the of the first tradition, but I, I remember the, the sense of it. I remember the heart of it. I think it says, communicate or die. I think it says, you may not like each other, but you sure got to love each other. At any rate, I have later learned that during the first ten years of AA's existence, they had to learn this lesson in a hard way. I know that when the, when the big book was written, a great number of people didn't like the idea of writing a book at all, and they fought bitterly, and I've even come to understand, although it was hard for me to understand that first year, that some of the people in the A didn't care for each other at all. They even said things about each other. One or two of them lied. There was a rumor about a thirteenth step. <laughs> There were talks about goofballs and various things, and so there were really good good number of reasons for these people not even to speak to each other and look at each other. And yet, and yet, for the first ten years, 
During the first ten years, AA members had learned that they had to stick together because they, lo- they needed each other. They had to love each other or they were probably going to die. I liked so much the panel on sponsorship last night, especially Bob when he said he goes out in, uh, in Rochester, no, not in Rochester, in, uh, in Berea, he's, I think he's from, uh, he said he goes out and talks to um, drunks even though they haven't asked for help. And he told us that a great number of times this is a very successful enterprise. I know of enterprises like this. I used to collect uh, stories like this for the AA grapevine, how AA came to people who were not asking for it. And there's many people sober today as a result of that kind of carrying the message. And that seems to me a beautiful realization of the fact that we need each other. We absolutely have to have each other. Now, AA members had behaved that way and therefore had stuck together up until 1945, and they had even agreed that it would be all right not breaking and not doing any damage if they let AA be listed in the telephone directory locally. That was a great miracle, I think, that they agreed to that. I think that's a miracle they agreed to that because in my group, well, I don't know about anybody else's group. I think it's such a miracle that the first hundred members stuck together long enough to write a whole book, to agree on a whole book. My group right now couldn't write one page. <laughs> so certainly my own recovery depended upon the fact that, and still does, of course, every day, that... that uh, that we realize our common welfare comes first, that my personal recovery depends upon a unity. And as most of you probably know, that's the conference, uh, the theme of the General Service Conference, in, which meets in New York in April. Uh, personal recovery depends upon a unity. And it's an impressive fact uh, how unified AA is around the world, and I'm sure it's, it's an impressive fact to people, especially outside AA, who look at us and wonder how in the heck we do it without any officers. How do we keep our business going at all? How do we keep helping people as long as we don't have any rules? This must be a mysterious thing. Of course, they don't remember, they don't realize something you and I know, and that is it right outside every single AA meeting room there is a president. And right outside every AA meeting room there are rules and laws that have to be obeyed. The president is, of course, is booze. And if you don't want to, um, uh, do what it is suggested you do in AA, there isn't a world outside where Booze takes over, and if we didn't do what it is suggested, undoubtedly very few of us would be alive. The fact that we don't have a president now thrills me, and perhaps it's because during the first year I was in AA, I got a telephone call one day at my office, and somebody said, did you know that Charlie, who was the chairman of the Manhattan Group, which is about the only group we had in New York at that time, Charlie has got drunk. Now, in my naivete and innocence and ignorance, abysmal ignorance about AA, I assumed that Charlie was the president of the whole international outfit. And Charlie was drunk. What did that mean? Well, I had been president of a few things in college, so I thought they're going to be needing a likely young fellow to take over as president. And with great humility, I left the office rapidly and got to the clubhouse, where I smiled several times at people I didn't know that day. I even sprang for coffee half a dozen times and kept waiting for them to bring up the subject of whom are they going to get and would I mind. (laughs) Pitching in. Um, Nobody mentioned it all day. Nobody mentioned the fact that Charlie had got drunk. It was completely ignored until after coffee that evening. I decided that somebody had to bring it up, and so I would. 
Maybe they were just shy about asking me. So I said, with what I hoped was great sorrow and sadness, isn't it too bad about Charlie? There were several old-timers at the table, God bless them. One of them looked right through me and said, well, just because Charlie got drunk doesn't mean you have to get drunk. (laughs) He got my message better than I did. Um, He said, we'll find somebody to do Charlie's job. It's not a very nice job, by the way. He said, no no job in AA is a very enjoyable job. Uh, And I think most of us here are aware of that. Most of us have been a secretary or a chairman or GSR or a delegate or a committee man or something or a treasurer. You know how it is the first time you get elected. You're elected and you think, what an honor. You're so happy. You know, you're fairly new in your sobriety. And you have no idea at that moment that the following day the entire movement is going to turn against you. (laughs) And from then on, everything that happens is your fault, you know. (laughs) Well, that was exactly what the... This old-timer said to me, he said, this is a, AA jobs are very dirty jobs. Nobody particularly enjoys them, and it's a very tough life. Uh, nevertheless, we think it's an important, uh, it's important fact to, we, we have to have these services performed, and we therefore can find somebody who will do these dirty jobs for us. And I didn't know what he was saying, but of course we now have words for it. We have words which say, our leaders are but trusted servants, they do not govern. You and I know that sometimes we try to govern, but we don't get very far. We also know that for our group purpose, there's only one ultimate authority, a loving God, expressing himself in our group conscience. My own definition of group conscience is whatever they do that I agree with. (laughs) Otherwise, I know good and well it's just a faction, you know. Um, And this is not always very good... uh, very good for one's vanity. It's sort of abrasive. I have not learned very much about humility in AA, but I've learned a great deal about humiliation from time to time when the group shows me how wrong I am. I'm impressed by the fact that the group conscience in AA ought to be, probably, at least in my experience, ought to be something informed. And I think about my first days, my first year in AA, when I was so willing to contribute to any discussion, we just call them discussions, to be polite, great wisdom on any subject about which I knew nothing, especially AA subjects. And years later, when I became a GSR, I discovered that it was perhaps a good idea for me to inform myself a little bit about AA before I went any farther. I went out to St. Louis to that convention in 1955 and got hold of a lot of literature there and began to try to read things because it became terribly important to me that I know what I was talking about, and that's a new switch. At the, since the subject of the conference this year is group, is AA unity, personal recovery depends upon AA unity, one of the topics on the, on the agenda is, um, how a literature manages to contribute to a unity. Now, again, I'm just talking about my group, not yours, but I know that in my group there are probably five people that know anything about a literature at all, except they know the 12 steps are in there. And uh, yet, at a discussion meeting, they can talk with great authority and great wisdom about a literature and how it contributes or does not contribute to a unity. 
An informed group conscience, of course, asks that we learn something about what's going on, and I don't like that. I just rather talk. And I found that I had to read something called the Third Legacy Manual, and I still believe there's nothing duller to read. Yeah, one of the delegates down here is agreeing. Uh, uh, surely some GSRs and some committeemen, uh, there must be a, quite a few people here who haven't read the Third Legacy Manual. At least some of the faces look awfully blank. Well, try. The next time you can't sleep, try reading it. It's a wonderful cure for insomnia. <laughs> But at least it begins to give us a glimmer and a glimpse of some aspects of AA that most of us know absolutely nothing about. It's, uh, I, I really feel sorry for people who don't because I think they're people who would only take the foam off the top of the beer. Imagine pouring all the rest of it away, and yet, of course, that's what many of us are willing to do in AA, isn't it? At least I have been. Just take the head off the top and ignore all the rest of AA, and there's so much, there's so much richness there. I feel now a little bit like uh, Millie in that beautiful talk last night when she said, she was undressing herself up here in front of everybody. Uh, I never heard a more beautiful striptease, Millie. Where are you? Uh, but in talking about these traditions, I'm really talking about myself. I'm, I'm using you as a sort of uh, surrogate sponsor and talking about how badly I perform in these areas. Because let's just take another one of the, these words there in that second tradition. Our leaders are but trusted servants. I don't know about you, but I... Uh, found recently that I was no longer able to work as a volunteer at our New York intergroup office, and uh, I'm disappointed because I enjoy that work very much. But after I'd been away from there for about a month, after I'd been away from the intergroup office working on, on the desk as a volunteer, I heard myself describing intergroup one day as they, those other people up there, not we. This is my intergroup. I happen to help support it through my group. This is, a, this is an intergroup. I was there when it started, for heaven's sake. And I'm talking about intergroup as they. Now, I'm saying it as they because I'm criticizing what they do up there. And suddenly, instead of giving what I think the, the tradition suggests we give to our trusted servants, those volunteers and the two or three paid people we are working there at our intergroup office, I'm not giving trust. I'm giving criticism and distrust. I was glad that I heard myself say they one day, because then at least I could shut up and think about it a little bit, and think about, if there's nothing else I can do, since I'm not up at the intergroup office, I can certainly trust the people who are there to do the best job they can. I know they do. This is terribly important for me when it comes to our general service office, where I have done some work as a volunteer. I'm not on the payroll, but I've done some work up there. My group personally could not answer 12,000 requests for help a year. <clears throat> we simply couldn't do it. But I want those 12,000 letters answered. I want those 12,000 inquiries answered. And so I hope the General Service Office continues to do it. And uh, since I'm not going to be there and I'm not going to do anything about it, I think the least I can give the people up there is not just money, although they need that, of course. But surely I can give them my love and my trust and my support. They are our trusted servants. Surely when we elect a delegate to the General Service Conference, now I've been in on some of the elections in New York, and I remember thinking, oh, no, not him, when he got elected, you know, not giving him any, any trust at all. So I'm not doing very well yet on giving trust. I'm trusting you a great deal of, uh, this morning, but that's about as far as I've ever gotten. One of the nice things that happened the first day I walked into AA, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that uh, they didn't ask me any questions. 
Before I walked in, in uh, January 45, it was an old clubhouse, and it was a very cold day, and I was terrified. I didn't know what in the world you people would do to me. I didn't know whether I should wear a gym suit for the exercises, or, uh, you know, if I should tune up my voice to sing How Dry I Am. Uh, I had no idea what would be expected, and so I did what I had always done when going into a strange, going into a strange bar, I made up several lies, good ones. I wasn't going to tell anybody how much I drank, because maybe you wouldn't let me in. I wasn't going to tell you what I would do to get a drink, because you probably wouldn't let me in, and I certainly wasn't going to tell you what I did when I got drunk. You wouldn't, wouldn't help me at all if you knew that, at least the parts that I remembered. So I had some lies ready, and I walked into this old clubhouse, and there was a, a bulletin board outside, and it's like bullet, AA bulletin boards the world over. I'm sure they're all, all at least all those that I have seen are exactly alike. They contain at least ten announcements of anniversaries celebrated last year. <laughs> And two or three clippings and a sympathy card or something like this, you know. But I was standing there looking at the at the bulletin board. I was pretending to read it. Hell, I couldn't read. I was too scared to read. What I was really doing was casing the joint. I was looking around and thinking, well, she doesn't look like one, and he doesn't look like one. You know, where do they keep some? <laughs> and about that time, one of you beautiful, beautiful, beautiful AA dolls where were you when I was drinking, I'd like to know. <laughs> you never came in the bars I was in. Um, one of you beautiful A women came up behind me, which was a good trick. I was a cagey drunk. Uh, sneaked up behind me and said in a very soft voice, not, you know, how much do you drink or what are you doing here, any of these questions I was prepared for. She said, are you having trouble with your drinking? I thought that's a very unfair question. <laughs> Because I hadn't prepared for that one, so before I knew what I was, uh, before I knew what I was doing, I said yes. <laughs> well, it was a bad mistake, uh, uh, in, in, in a way, because then she had me, and she said, um, what I think are the most beautiful words I've ever heard in my life. She said, well, I'm a drunk myself. Come on in, let's talk it over. She was clean. She was respectable. She was obviously happy. She was not dramatic at all when she said calmly, I'm a drunk, and very gently, come on in and let's talk it over. It was absolutely beautiful. And she took me in and sat me down, and she didn't ask me any embarrassing questions. She didn't ask me to fill out an application form. You know, I couldn't have written anyhow. She didn't ask me my telephone number, who had a telephone left. It long since been disconnected. Uh, she didn't ask me where I had worked last work. <laughs> She didn't ask me which church I had recently quit. <laughs> Have you ever tried to teach Sunday school early on a Sunday morning with a head like this, especially with a group of boys like that? <clears throat> or if you just sat in the choir? That's what drove me out of church. It wasn't the religion. <clears throat> But this beautiful lady, this beautiful lady then began to tell me the story of her alcoholism, and she told me about the fact that she had a disease, which I might have. She didn't indicate that I had it. She said, but you can find out if you do. And she told me how uh, people, that the disease is an irreversible process, and people can recover, and we help each other stay sober uh, one day at a time. Uh, however, the truth was, and she admitted this, I forced her to, it really meant you could never drink again as long as you live. 
That's what she really meant. And this I didn't go for at all. I had no in, no intention of stopping drinking completely. It's a good thing nobody said to me, do you want to stop drinking in my earlier days? I would have said no and goodbye. Even the thought was revolting. But she didn't mention this. She simply said, um, look, we don't know about tomorrow. None of us do. We may get drunk. But perhaps as of today, you can go without one drink. And then maybe if you want to, you'll let us help you do the same thing tomorrow and so on. And then I said, thank you very much uh, for the information because it all made good sense. And, and uh, how do I join? And she said, join? I said, yes, it, you know, what, what's, what are the, what's the initiation fee and what are the, you know, what's the right? And she said, oh, oh, well, if you say you're a member, you are one. I was very disappointed. Uh, I thought there should be some trumpets blowing somewhere. I had, after all, turned myself in, you know. <laughs> and I said, well, now, wait a minute. How, what will you do? You know, how will you know if I stay sober? And then she said some real dirty words. She said, oh, we won't know, but you will. <laughs> I was very disappointed because I was accustomed to being checked up upon from time to time. People always, you know, wondering why you're late or wondering why you didn't get there are saying, well, where have you been? My mother used to do that in a very clever way. She called it kissing. But I knew what she was doing, and, and, and she did too. Obviously, no one in AA cared about anything I had done except the fact that perhaps I might want to stop drinking, and they passed no judgment. Had they passed a judgment on my moral uh, earnings, my spiritual earnings, had I lived such a life that I deserved AA, the verdict would have been no. Had they passed a judgment on my membership, if there had been a membership committee and they had to judge whether or not I was available for membership or uh, qualified for membership on the basis of what had happened to me, the answer might have been no. I had only been in jail twice. I had only been hospitalized for alcoholism once. I had only lost jobs during one year. I don't know how many, about 30, I think, that one year. Oh, just one year, uh, you know, just a one-year history. Uh, I was sort of a punk drunk. I scared easy, I guess. So I would not have really made... I had no qualifications whatsoever for membership in even the human race. I didn't deserve the, the, the light that came down from the sun. I didn't deserve the air I breathed. I didn't deserve anything. I really didn't. And yet these people made only had only one requirement, and apparently they just did that in their hearts because they never said a word about it. And this was if I wanted if I wanted what they had, I was entitled to it. Maybe even if I had not been an alcoholic and had lied and said I thought I might be an alcoholic, they would probably have said, Well, if you think you might be and you still want what we have, you're entitled. I don't find it easy to keep this particular tradition foremost in my mind because I find it easier to think in terms of qualifying members. I like this guy's sobriety and that guy, that girl's sobriety, and I like the way this man talks about this, but now, you know, some of these other fellows, I don't know. Um, 
Some of these people, I don't understand how some of these people call their lives AA, blah, blah, blah. I'm taking everybody's inventory but my own. Really what I'm doing, it seems to me now, is ruling people out of AA in my heart, my own private AA, which is here in my heart. I rule people out on the basis of whether or not I approve of their behavior. As if anybody can judge what's in anybody else's heart. I think that's the beautiful part of the, the way the tradition is now stated. The only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. And who can judge the desire in another man's heart? I have two pigeons in New York who were there in AA when I got there, 23 years ago, and they are still drinking. They're still drinking. But which one of us can make a judgment that in these guys' hearts they do not want to get sober? I watch them suffer. I've seen them try when they are sober to stay sober. I don't think anybody in the world has a right to say that these men are not good AA members because they really try. And even if they didn't try in the way that I approve, as if I had the power of approval, I still think as long as they think they need us, they're entitled to membership in AA. And if I keep up my present behavior, which is setting up the little fence I set up about uh, about people, you know, fencing off the good A's and the bad A's, uh, fencing off the ones who tell the truth versus the ones who lie, the pill babies from the others, that sort of thing. Um, What I would do eventually, I'm convinced now, is fence myself in so that there'd be no one left in the movement but me. (laughs) And that's exactly where I was before I came to A. It was a glass fence. So it's time for me to start thinking a little bit about the requirements of membership as a desire which I cannot judge in another man's heart. Of course, it's also said that, you know, uh, we we now uh, do so many things in AA and we get to so many wonderful conferences like this. I personally am so thrilled about these things, the conferences like this. I remember the first one or two I saw I didn't approve of. I thought it made AA look too social, as if we shouldn't celebrate being sober. Well, I celebrated everything when I was drinking, including St. Swithin's Day and uh, (laughs) March the 17th, you name it. I was uh, celebrating in February, getting ready for St. Patty's Day, and frequently kept the blaze going until August. Uh, I remember being jailed one time, I was jailed for drunkenness, and the man said, what were you doing? And I said, I was um, celebrating my birthday. And he said, when was that? And I said, oh, it was in November. My God, that was six months ago. I was still celebrating. Um, I think it's wonderful that now we get around to a lot of conferences like this and get to meet great many more people. I think sobriety itself is a beautiful fact and is worth celebrating. And I hope these things keep up. But the first one or two of these I saw, I thought was, I thought were pretty bad. I remember learning early in my career, that somebody on Long Island, which is outside, a little bit outside the city, you probably know, in New York, had set up a, a new AA group out in Long Island. This almost broke up New York AA. We got into a horrible fight. How dare they, out in Long Island, set up their own brand of AA? Who's going to help us support the clubhouse? Who's going to keep the place going? This is perfectly horrible. It really almost caused a breakup of the movement uh, in, in, uh, in New York, at least, because these people were going to set up their own group as if we shouldn't have thousands and thousands of groups instead of just one or two. Then I discovered that some groups in another part of the country, which is what I call the Wild West, New Jersey. <clears throat> of course, I am uh, I'm chauvinistic about New York City because I really came from Texas. <laughs> But so therefore, anything across the Hudson River is a wild west. 
I discovered that in New Jersey they were doing something dreadful. They had anniversary parties and celebrated the fact that a person had been sober one year. And they gave him a present and maybe even had a cake and sang happy birthday. Well, I decided something was wrong. They had missed the boat. You're not supposed to reward people for staying sober. This is a 24-hour program. And in my grimmest Salvation Army manner, I went around preaching a great deal. Forgive me. Preaching a great deal. (laughs) In the worst possible way, that something should be done about it. Again, it was an old-timer who helped me out with some kind advice. He said, damn it, do it. (laughs) Thank God there were people in AA who had the courage to experiment with new ideas. Surely being sober a year is worth it. Being sober uh, is worth the celebration. Being sober ten years is worth the celebration. Being sober a day is worth the celebration. And surely it's wonderful that, uh, that we have anniversaries like this. And surely it's great that nobody can tell a group that they're doing it wrong. The group has its own way of, can have its own way of doing it. So each group is autonomous, except of course in matters affecting other groups, or A as a whole. Now that came back to haunt me just a few years ago, when I was working in an advertising agency, and I had uh, occasion to hire a young man and discover after I'd hired him that he had a bad drinking problem. He's already on the payroll. And his former employer told me on the phone that he didn't think the boy lived to be 30. The boy was only 24. He was a genius, a real genius. And I later learned in working with this kid that he had. Yes, and I later learned in working with this kid that he had uh, three kinds of pills in his pocket all the time, and he went on dreadful ba- uh, binges. Since the guy was already hired, I decided there may have been a purpose in his getting hired, and happened to be working for me. And that, so one day I asked him to go to lunch with me. He did. And uh, he ordered a drink, and I didn't. And he asked me, didn't I drink? And I told him I couldn't because I was an alcoholic. And I was in AA. And he told me that his mother had been in AA for many, many years. As a matter of fact, she was one of the old-timers. She had, as a, well, actually, he said, she's probably a great deal farther along than you are. <clears throat> she's been doing so well, they now let her drink. Uh, have a special ward in which she has her own bed out in the state hospital. I think AA is just wonderful. Uh, This was his opinion of AA. And I told him my story and tried to straighten out a few of his misconceptions about AA, which had come, of course, as we can imagine, from from his mother, really, because she was a very sad and sick alcoholic case. Uh, She died just a few weeks ago of alcoholism in convulsions outside the door of a hospital which wouldn't accept her. She was an alcoholic so the hospital wouldn't take her. So she died in convulsions on the hospital step. Um, this boy had some rather distorted notions of AA, understandably, and I can understand why a great number of clergymen and, and far more psychiatrists have very weird ideas about what AA is because they hear about AA from patients who are in trouble. They hear about AA from people who are slipping. They hear about AA from people who are saying, oh, those louses up there to AA, they didn't do this for me, or they did this to me, or whatever it is. They're all a bunch of hypocrites, and they all flirt with each other's wives, and whatever they, you know. And any guy who's on a slip can find a million reasons. I did. 
<coughs> for not going to AA. And these are, these are the stories about AA which most psychiatrists and most, most physicians and most clergymen and most social workers here, even judges, hear this kind of story far more than they see the kind of assemblage we have here this morning. Shortly after my luncheon with this young man, in which I did my very best to tell him my own story, and not persuade, not indicate that I thought he needed anything of the sort, but I wanted him to have the message in case he could use it. Shortly after that, I came down with the flu, and I missed about four days. And when I went back to work, you can imagine what happened. He couldn't wait to get in my office and close the door and say, How was it? Did you have a good one? And it gave me a new slant on that tradition. There, there's perhaps no such thing as autonomy in many ways. Anything I do in which I am recognizable as an AA member reflects on AA. When I assured him I simply had the flu, he said, yeah, I know. He had used it himself a million times. But you see, the impression I gave him, as other people had given him, was that AA people are probably liars anyhow and that they go off and get drunk and call it something else. I don't know what I can do very much in the world now, which doesn't really reflect on AA, because I make it known to almost anybody, whether they're willing or not, that I am a, that I am a member. So anything I do reflects on AA. If I go to speak at another group, this is a reflection on my group. If my group ignores, as it sometimes does, and I'm... I'm not proud to say that I'm one of the people who does the ignoring. I love what Bill O. said last night about the newcomer who walks in and nobody speaks to him. This happens in my group, I know. I remember my own experience in my first year. The very It was at least three weeks after my first day in A before anybody looked at me and said hello. And I'll never forget who that was and the look on her face when she smiled and said hello. I was so scared. Had anybody said much more than hello, I would have run home. I did not want to be hovered around. I did not want to meet people. I was terrified. I did not like what was happening to me. I was a little, little, bit, little bit relieved. But I didn't really want to be one of you. Not really. You were so fanatic about everything. And this fanaticism, of course, I now recognize in myself from time to time. It's a very unattractive quality, believe me. But I'm one of the people who sometimes stands and chats with my old friends and lets half a dozen newcomers walk in and perhaps walk out and no one has said hello and nobody has given them a telephone number and nobody has done anything about about helping them in any manner whatsoever. And doesn't this reflect on all of AA? I'm afraid it does. It's a good thing for me, at least, that during the first year, A had nothing to sell me. There was literature there in case I wanted to buy some, and there still is. And I didn't think much of it when I first saw it. The first literature I read sounded to me as if it were written under, uh, sort of say underwater, but more like under stained glass. It sounded to me like a, pre a very bad preacher had written it. And uh, I didn't think very much of it. Of course, one of the old-timers helped there, too. He said, uh, how long have you been sober now? And I said, oh, a few weeks. And he said, yeah, well, the people who wrote this book had been sober years. You better shut up and read it. And when that, I didn't like the speaker sometimes, and I would make this fact known. The man who was one of these old-timers would generally say something like, uh, you know, he's sober, and you better shut up. You might learn something. He may have been sober longer than you or not so long as you. But if you shut up, you might learn something, even if you don't like what he's saying. 
It's a good thing they didn't try to sell me any, any, any particular brand of religion. It's a good thing that A did not, in those days, uh, was not particularly interested in, although we thought it should be done, organizing uh, uh, an organization to acquaint the public about alcoholism. Luckily, in my first year, there was the, there was a, the National Council on Alcoholism was founded, and I knew the people who founded it, and I was thrilled to death that the public at last is going to be educated about alcoholism. I think there's a great need for this today. Thank God we have all these wonderful state and federal programs going on now and so many things appearing in the newspapers and magazines and on television about alcoholism. Whether or not A is mentioned doesn't really ter- bother me terribly. I wish it would be mentioned more and more accurately. Nevertheless, there's a wonderful educational program going on and I've stopped to wonder what would happen if the first year I was in AA, I discovered that AA was, had in- decided to inform the public about alcoholism. We were going to set up an educational agency to inform the doctors and the clergymen and all the rest of the public about alcoholism. What would we do if we were going to do such a thing? Well, first of all, we'd have to organize a committee. (laughs) Right there, you might know, quite, quite a number of us would get drunk because we weren't on the committee, or because somebody else was. Our second job, of course, as a committee would be to raise some money, because to have an educational campaign, you have to raise money. And so AA would have started out a fundraising campaign. I can just see all your pretty little girls now in AA going around in bars shaking your hand. to those of us sitting there that you're, going, you're, you're raising money to <laughs> inform the public about alcoholism. Obviously, we would have had to have uh, officers, we would have had to have rules, we would have had to agree on our purpose. We would have had to agree on how we're going to go about our purpose. Are we going to go on NBC or CBS first? This alone, I think, would create a discussion that would sound like full moon over Central State Hospital or something. We couldn't agree. We couldn't agree on anything. Undoubtedly, a great number of people would have got drunk. As a matter of fact, this did happen when the only clubhouse we had in New York in those days uh, finally broke up because we discovered that we couldn't uh, run real estate very well and keep all the tough step jobs going and at the same, uh, at the same time keep AA going and run this real estate operation, which is a very expensive one. Now, I don't want to sound as if I don't appreciate AA clubhouses. I do. I do very much, particularly here in the city of Louisville, because nine years ago I used to have to come here quite regularly, working, uh, uh, almost commuted to Louisville. And thank God for that old token club. I was very glad it was there, because I worked in the evenings in addition to all day long, and I had I could not get to AA meetings, but that club was generally there, and I could get over there in the evening. And I remember some people I met there who were very kind and who were very hospitable. And I'm awfully glad that there were clubhouses in my, in the beginning of my sobriety. It was a place for me to go during the day. But it was not a good idea, obviously, in the experience we had there in New York, to try to make this what, what AA is, a club, that AA is a clubhouse. This didn't work. Somehow or other, it seemed to, this made a, a gambling joint because we had our problems with fellows in the basement who, who you know, who really play po- rather play poker than carry the message anytime. We also had our problem with, uh, uh, lonely hearts <laughs> around the clubhouse, and we certainly had our problems with money, and uh, we had our problems with uh, rules on whom to keep out. <laughs> we had to have a new set of bylaws every month. 
Because whatever set of bylaws we would pass, somebody that we didn't like would manage to get in. If necessary, he'd even stay sober a few weeks, you know, and come back in, and then we'd have to pass a new set of bylaws to find some way to keep this guy out. And yet, this was the AA center in that city, New York City. This wasn't right, really. Uh, this gave people the impression that AA, because we were due to, there were, in this clubhouse, many of us stayed dues. At, in order to keep the club going, and I think this is only appropriate when there is a nice clubhouse raise. I think it's fine that there should be dues collected, but that we should let the impression grow that AA itself is a dues-paying outfit, or that AA itself has a Lonely Hearts Club inside, special domestic service or whatever, uh, you know, the little 13th-step coterie. Uh, that we should give the impression that AA is primarily interested in making money in its cafeteria, which is what was one of the big problems we had. It's hard to make money in the cafeteria because all the people who took care of the money were drunk. And uh, it caused a great deal of trouble. Well, finally, that dear old clubhouse had to be given up, and I, I'm, there are no others now around, and I'm so glad there are because I think there should be a place where we can go. My, my sobriety depended a great deal on a place, not just on people, not just on things, but on a place in the early days. And I think it's wonderful, but I also think we made a sad mistake in many ways there in New York in giving people the impression that the clubhouse was A itself, which of course it is. So I'm glad that we learned at least to a little extent that maybe the thing for us to do when it comes to that they had already begun to learn that the the um, our primary purpose is to carry the message to the guy who still suffers. And I want to point out, as as uh, in connection with what was said last night on that wonderful sponsorship panel, the guy who suffers most in the room may not be that new that newcomer. I do not I do agree that the newcomer is the lifeblood of A, but I don't think he's the most the most important person. I think uh, equally important as lifeblood is backbone. And if it weren't for those discouraging old timers, God bless them, I think we would be an awfully sloppy group floundering around in all that lifeblood. <laughs> So I'm awfully glad they're old-timers, and when it says our primary uh, purpose is to carry the message to the guy who still suffers, that may be somebody who's sober 20 years, and maybe somebody who's been sober uh, many years, even more than, more than 20. I had the experience a few years ago of finding how badly I needed help. One day I was physically ill. I'd been sober many years. There was no, no question of drinking in this illness, but I was quite frightened, and I had to get to the doctor, and I found I could not get out of bed without fainting. And I was alone, and I had to get some help to get me to the doctor's office, and I could only think of one person at my end of town who was in AA and who would be willing to come to my house and take me to the doctor. One man who I knew if I called him and sounded like a baby, scared, which I was, he would say, I know how that is, and he would come over and help me. Now, it happened that this man was the one man in AA I despise most. <laughs> and the feeling was mutual. And I had to get off the bed and lie on the floor and call him and blubbering like a baby, ask him if he'd come to my house and if he couldn't get in to get help and get in and pick me up and take me to the doctor's office because I needed help. It was humiliating and liberating at the same time. It was absolutely wonderful. It was a brand new thought on sh for me on sharing our experience. Surely I needed at that moment, more than anything else, to share the experience I was having, which was terror and sickness. 
And with whom else could I share it but somebody else in AA? Even though I didn't particularly like him, nor did he like me. We never did become friends. But God bless him, he was there that afternoon and spent the day with me. And I always loved him. But I sometimes find that I don't like remembering our primary purpose is to carry the message. I begin to think that maybe the primary purpose sometimes for me, well, let's just say I'm talking to a newcomer, and at that particular moment, my primary purpose probably is to get him to like me. I'm afraid I act sometimes as if I'd rather be liked than carry the message. I found this particularly true on nights when I feel sort of busy or sort of tired, and there's a new man there, and he needs friends, he needs help, he needs our way of life, he wants our way of life, and I meet him, and uh, I'm in a hurry to get home, and I'm a little bit not nice, not feeling very spiritual at all, and not feeling very helpful. And I buy off my conscience, of course, by buying him something to eat and putting him up in a hotel. So I don't feel all... I've gotten my, my conscience off the hook, but what a cheap and dirty trick I pulled on him. He needs, you know and I know, not a meal. He can get that anywhere. Not in AA, but anywhere else. He needs, we both know, not a place to stay, because he can get that. The Salvation Army was doing that better than we did long, long years. Thank God, long before AA, and they're still doing a gorgeous job of it. He doesn't need these physical things. He needs to wrestle with his soul, if I may use the expression. And he needs a friend who will stand out, stand up with him, toe-to-toe and eye-to-eye, and slug it out. Somebody who will tell him what they told me, that this is a spiritual program, and that this is a spiritual illness. And the real recovery, the real depth, the real breadth of recovery is spiritual, and therefore beautiful. Not that AA is a cheap place where you can come, uh, somebody will help you out with a buck, or free cigarettes, something of the sort. So I don't do a very good job, but there's another way in which I fail, I think, in that sort of instance, and this is when it is... This refers to our tradition that says our our um, uh, public relations policy is based on attraction, not promotion. I suppose that means that we're supposed to make sobriety so attractive that other people want it. I remember once talking to a new man uh, for about four hours one evening. He hadn't asked me for this four-hour discourse, I must admit. <clears throat> and at the end of the four hours, the poor shaking wretch with cotton in his mouth got up his courage and said, you know what's the matter with you? (laughs) You are a humorless fanatic. And he was so right. He was so right. It says we don't promote. The hell we don't. I was trying my darndest to promote him into a A. Did you ever hear yourself talk to a newcomer? No Madison Avenue pitchman could do half what we do in promoting a movement. I make AA sound as if every one of us were knights on white horses and that we never committed a sin in our lives. What a glowing and gorgeous picture I can paint, promoting the heck out of it. But do I really make sobriety the kind that I have, the one that I have, so attractive that he really wants it? And the answer is no, obviously. Instead, I try to bribe him to stay sober. You know, if I'll buy you a meal, you will come back to the meeting, won't you? As if that would help him. You know it doesn't work. I think when it says we need to maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and television, that's a great thing. Uh, there's no question in my mind that one of the, that the promise of privacy, which is in our name, that word anonymous, 
is one of the things that saves our lives. Certainly it's one of the things that saved my life. It was a sort of flap in the tent, like this old circus tent where the boys could crawl in a flap in the back and get in free. It was a little flap in the tent which enabled me to sneak into AA because I really thought it was important that nobody know I was there. I thought my name was important. Most people still don't know it. Uh, nevertheless, the fact that I was promised privacy was terribly important in this name. And I think this is great. I hope we maintain anonymity at the public level, at the level of, that is at the level of press, radio, and television, forever and ever. On the other hand, I hope we don't maintain secrecy, on the personal level especially. I can think of so many instances in which I have got a 12-step call simply because I had told people around me that I was an alcoholic in NAA and that if they ever knew anybody who wanted to, to talk to anybody in AA, I was available. And again, as we heard last night, there are so many people now willing, ready, and waiting for AA help. But they don't know anything about AA. We think everybody knows about it, but everybody doesn't. Not very many years ago, I happened to, uh, get, when I was doing some volunteer work with the general service office, I encountered a letter from a man in a large Middle Eastern industrial city. And it told the following story. This man was a town drunk. Everybody in town knew he was a bad drunk, and he finally went to, um, he was in the jail all the time, and finally one day his doctor said to him, you know what you need is Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was agreeable, he said, fine, what's that? And the doctor said, uh, well, this is a people, a group of people like you, or at least they used to be like you, and they will help you, why don't you go get with them? And he said, where do I find them? The doctor said, I don't know, I don't know where you find them, but you find out where they are, and uh, they'll help you. So the man immediately went and looked in the telephone book, and there was no listing for Alcoholics Anonymous. There was some sort of weird-looking clubhouse listing, but it did not say Alcoholics Anonymous. He also went to the police station and asked them about it, and they said, oh, it's just what you need, really. We hope you get to it. And he said to the police, well, where is it? And they said, oh, we don't know. And he went to several churches, and he said, they tell me out to find Alcoholics Anonymous. Do you know where I can find it? And all the clergymen, God bless them, and I would like to say just offhand here, not because the reverend's sitting to my right, but how much we owe to these clergymen and these non-alcoholic physicians and all these wonderful people who send people to us all the time. I don't think it would be half what it was, half what it is without Father Dowling and Sam Shoemaker, Dr. Silkworth, Dr. Tebow, a lot of those great wonderful non-alcoholics. Don't tell me that only an alcoholic can understand an alcoholic. I've been understood far too well by so many non-alcoholics. Much more, much more than, I, than it makes me comfortable to think about. At any rate, this poor guy said uh, to the clergyman, where can I find AA? And they said, it's a great thing, but we don't know where you can find it. And then as it happened, on, uh, he stayed sober, and I, I think that's a curious fact, he stayed sober looking for it. <laughs> Finally, in a Lying in a gutter, he saw, he wasn't lying in the gutter, but he saw lying in the gutter a book, an old book with a red and yellow cover on it, the old book, the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and he jumped and picked it up and read it, and there he saw inside post office box 459 New York, New York, and he wrote immediately to our general service office and said, you know, thank heavens, I found out where, where this is. Uh, I've been looking, I thought you were here in my town, I've been looking for you but you're not here in my town, you're in New York, because now I have this book. And it had been then a solid year that he'd been trying to find it. He'd been sober a year. 
Of course, it was marvelous that the general service office could write him and tell him there were 16 groups in his hometown. <laughs> 16. Not one of them had let anybody know where it was so that, in, so that a newcomer could get help there. Nevertheless, uh, it was a wonderful thing. But th what's interesting to me is that this man did not know where AA was, did not know how to find it, had never heard of it until this particular, in this particular occasion. And this is a common experience around the country, that people don't know where AA is or what it is. I think that's a shame. I think we have a, I'm so delighted that we now have these public information committees doing a good job of making sure that the people have a little bit better understanding of what we try to do in AA and what we don't do. I sometimes think in working with a new man that I make my biggest mistake in not warning him what we're not going to do, as I was warned. During my first week in AA, my very first week, I just went to the old clubhouse every day and sat around and waited, thinking one of these days one of you was going to really help shell out. Because I wasn't sure I wanted to stop drinking, but I was in debt up to my armpits. And I needed some financial help, so I just kept waiting and waiting and waiting, and nobody said anything about whatever. Well, it was very nice and very sweet, but nobody, you know, brought up the real problem. And one day I was sitting there, and some big, distinguished, happy-looking gentleman, almost as, you know, as distinguished as Bill here, walked up and stuck out his hand and said, My name is so-and-so. Hello, how are you? And I thought, There's a live one. And he said, Can I do anything to help you? And I said, Yes, I'd like to borrow $2,000. For the next few minutes, he educated me, and he told me I was in the wrong place and where I could go, and he assured me that he wouldn't help me with a money problem or a, an eating problem or a clothes problem or a sleeping problem or a sex problem or anything else. He would help me stay sober, and then I could take care of myself, he supposed, although he looked rather doubtful. I waited until he, till I, uh, after he was bigger than I was. I had to sit there and listen to all this. And finally, after he had left, I realized he was partly right. I had begun to clear up a little bit, and I could take care of myself. And then I remembered, you see, one cousin I hadn't tapped for a long time. That's what they meant. Yeah, once you get sober, then you can remember those people you haven't borrowed from lately. So I sent a telegram, and I got the money, and I got drunk. And the money was gone, I was in debt that much more. Well, this man gave me a very valuable education that A doesn't do some of these things. It doesn't, uh, it, it, it's not going to do a number of these things. It wasn't going to solve my domestic problem or anything else. I had to find some other way to solve these problems. And this was a very good education for me, and I wish we would do more of it. I'm delighted we now have public information committees doing a great deal of informing the public about A, what it is and what it is not. And I'm also delighted, I repeat, and I feel safe in repeating this because I, I do not, I'm not on the payroll general service, although I get to do some work up there sometime. Um, I'm glad we have that office up there to sort of help hold us together, if nothing else. At least that is, there's a place where a central information clearinghouse where we can write and, and share. And of course, if there weren't any office, I'm convinced, if there were not a general service office, I'm convinced I wouldn't be sober. I don't think there'd be a single group in the United States had somebody not persuaded the rest of us that it was a good idea to write down the 12 steps and write a book, had they not been able to persuade that crazy printer out in New Jersey to print that crazy book on credit, why in the world did he trust these real wild-eyed promoters who said they were drunk 
and print up 5,000 copies of this wild book called Alcoholics Anonymous, and he did trust them. And they hadn't paid a penny down on, on, when, when he gave them the bound books. I think because that book came into existence, it stayed alive. I think if it hadn't, I think we, there, the, there may be one or two people around who might still have stayed sober. But I think that the place from which that book was originally shipped, and the place where people first wrote to find out about AA, which is now our, called our general service office, is the heart of the whole outfit. It's, it's pumping, it's pumping away all the time the life blood through these arteries of AA, which are all, all around the country. And I'm a little bit ashamed to face the fact that when I came in, they warned me AA was self-supporting, that there are no dues or fees. They said there are no dues or fees, but, you know. So I discovered that we have to, um, we have to pitch in. And I was one of the people who discovered very quickly that it was very easy to uh, have, you know, a $5 bill on the bar. It's very easy. But who would ever put a $5 bill in a collection basket, Reverend? <laughs> or for that matter, in an AA collection basket. Any treasurers here? I used to be the GSR and have to go around and, and uh, suggest to people they might, <laughs> might want to give three little bucks, you know. What's that? Not a, not a, not a penny a day to help keep that office going up there that answers twelve thousand letters a year and does a great deal more too. No, I wish I'm I'm ashamed to say that when uh, I was a lousy GSR, and I think the reason was because after the second or third time I got up before my group and tried to explain why we I was an intergroup delegate too and had the same job there at one time trying to explain why we need a little money out of the group pot or why we needed some in individual contributions to keep our telephone answering service and to keep our correspondence going so there's all those loners and those internationalists and those people in other countries. The second or third time I made this announcement, somebody said, we don't want to hear any more of that stuff about money. That's way off somewhere else. Of course, we're too spiritual for money. I know that. My group is terribly spiritual for money. Uh, uh, we are so spiritual, we don't dare discuss money except one time a month when we turn anti-spiritual and discuss money. We have a, what is called a business meeting. Bedlam is also a good word for it. <laughs> but honestly, we believe that as of a certain time during the month, as of one hour, we turn into sound, solid, unemotional businessmen who can now discuss business. Always important business, of course. We never bring up trivial issues. The last steering committee meeting I attended lasted two and a half hours. We only got down to three items on the agenda. The third one was whether or not to serve cherry tarts with the coffee. myself up in front of a group saying we need to have a little money. After about the third time I did this as treasurer, I was intergroup delegate, I was GSR, I was so embarrassed I quit doing it. So I was allowed to GSR. I'd rather be liked again than carry the true message, carry the whole message. It was more important to me that the group liked me than that I do something that I really believe in. And just to sh let me let me repeat right here how much I believe in it. I think it's awfully sick and tired. And a lot of people don't like this. Uh, I know a lot of people don't agree, but I get awfully sick and tired of our whining for an average of three dollars per member per year to keep our 
international correspondence going and to keep our pamphlets coming and so on. I think that's the wildest thing I ever heard of. Three dollars per member per year is ridiculous. I think what we should be saying is, sorry fellas, you can't give more than two hundred dollars, that's all. No more than two hundred dollars from any one individual. And I look back at my, uh, at the end of the year, or when income tax time comes around, I look back and see how much money did I really give AA? How much money did I put in the collection baskets? And how much money did I make as a personal contribution for the general service, uh, to, uh, to the general service office or to integrate? I'm embarrassed to say it isn't, there is a top maximum, as you know, two hundred dollars for an individual. I'm embarrassed to tell you how, how few times I have gone up to that. I've generally stuck to the minimum. As if AA weren't worth anything to me, and God knows it's worth my life. I think my AA is now, the sobriety I have in AA is, is the most important fact of my life. It is the thing about which I am most grateful. I'm also glad that we never got AA terribly organized and got uh, so set up so rigidly and so beautifully that we would operate with perfect or with perfection, well oil perfection all the time, because I think if we had, it would be, a, most, a great number of us would be drunk. And I'm also glad that we have let other organizations, such as the National Council on Alcoholism, do the other jobs that we can't do, specifically two organizations, to which I think I also owe a great deal of my life, although I'm not a member of either one, and that's Al-Anon and al I think next to AA I've learned more about living with other alcoholics, just the other alcoholics in my group, from those two organizations and from uh, almost anything under the sun. God bless them. They do such a beautiful job of healing those wounds that we made, healing those scars, healing that hurt. I do an awfully bad, I've found myself doing an awfully bad job <clears throat> sometimes when they, simply a wife calls and says, you know, will you come help this husband of mine who is sick drunk? And I do something stupid like say, does he want to stop drinking? She generally says, certainly not. And I can understand that. And I say, well, put him on the phone. He can't get on the phone. He's passed out. He's sick. He's dead. He's dying. He's drunk. Can't get on the phone. But I then say, well, you see, madam, we can't help him unless he will get on the phone. And I want to know the requirements for membership I'm setting up. You have to get on the phone and talk. Or you have to come into our office. You have to do it my way or we're not going to help. And I'm not even kind enough, unfortunately, to take a little time to talk to this woman who is sick Undoubtedly, there are bills unpaid, there are crying children. This is a very sad thing, the family of the alcoholic, and yet I'm not doing anything about it. I think when I first came into AA, the most significant thing after the learning about the disease of alcoholism was the fact that a clergyman, I, I mean a, a physician, a surgeon, talked to me the very first day after that lady I told you about, and I want to close by telling just what this dear clergyman did for me. He was a, an interesting man. He took me uh, in a private room and told me a great deal about AA in great big words. Now, I'm a snob, so that was a good idea. He explained AA to me in polysyllabic terms as a form of excellent group psychotherapy. Had he told me it was drunk talking to drunk, I wouldn't have got sober. Uh, but when he put it in big fancy words, I bit hook, line, and sinker. It was absolutely great. And he told me how the whole thing works in big fancy words, and I sat there and thought, you know, how nice it is that uh, they picked one of the intelligent ones to talk to me. Obviously, they knew I needed one of the intelligent ones. And, 
Oh, I have to, I should confess, that poor son of a gun got drunk that night. Uh, <laughs> but he made a beautiful pitch to me of how A works, and he, he hooked me on it, hook, line, and sinker. And at the end, he said, uh, let me warn you about something. He said, all the AA meetings end with the Lord's Prayer. I said, oh, really? No, this is too much. I thought this is group psychotherapy. And he said, well, it is. And he said, you know, I don't, uh, I'm an agnostic. I don't have any religion at all. I'm a scientist. I don't have any religion. But he said, don't be distressed about that Lord's Prayer. Even the agnostics and the atheists say it. Uh, and even the Catholics say the Protestant version. You know, we're really ecumenical. Uh, and we have a marvelous Mohammed in my group in New York, and he, he's learned to say it. He says it phonetically. He doesn't know what it means, but he says it. And uh, this surgeon said, the important thing about this is that whether or not you believe those beautiful old words, they are beautiful, familiar old words, and when we stand up and say them at the end of the meeting, we do it together. We do it together, which means that you're in effect holding hands with your brother and sister drunks all around the world. And we people who think we're the loneliest people in the world, remember your last drop or your last hangover, how lonely and isolated you felt, no one understood you, you didn't understand anybody, you couldn't get through to anybody, and nobody could get through to me. The loneliest people in the world, and he said, but we're not now. And he said, as long as you can stand up and hold... Uh, hold hands with the rest of us in effect by saying the Lord's Prayer you'll never be alone again as long as you live I thought that was a beautiful gift that he gave me a beautiful promise as a matter of fact the first year I was in AA I thought everybody was giving me gifts all the time you people were handing me knowledge and hope and you were even trusting me you were giving me beautiful gifts of encouragement and friendship and love and I thought all these outstretched hands that are coming my way suddenly made me think again of the days when I was a little boy in Texas going to Sunday school and I had heard people talk about the hand of God. I had forgotten the phrase. But I thought, this must be what they mean. This must be the hand of God, all these gifts. This is so beautiful. Isn't that infantile? Isn't that infantile to think that way? I'm not ashamed of it. It was the best I could do then. And I needed all those gifts and I'm grateful for them. But isn't it a baby-like way? I should have had diaper rash. My first year in AA, I should have been thinking that there must be more to the hand of God than just a hand that gives out presents all the time. Because I was a gimme person. And then, of course, I got to Toronto, and I hope a lot of you were there, and I hope you got to Miami in 1970. I wouldn't miss it for anything, although big crowds like that scare me to death. Uh, but it's a thrilling moment, especially when I was, uh, as I recall, the night that we all stood there in Toronto and held hands and said that pledge, I am responsible. It reminded me of my last drunk when I saw a man who was in the, in Bellevue Hospital. I was on the violent, uh, ward there. And, uh, oh yes, nothing but the best. Uh, they called it the flight deck. Uh, <laughs> I had a pure white linen camisole, too. You know? <laughs> and I remember that during the time, after they had let me, let my arms alone, uh, they, were, they, they didn't concentrate on my hips. Um, there was a man who had uh, tried to commit suicide on a drunken binge, and there were, there were not enough beds in the hospital, and so he was strapped to a wheelchair, and his hands were strapped to 
uh, boards because he cut his wrists and he cut his ankles and he couldn't walk. But in a hospital that overstaffed, I mean the understaffed and that overpopulated with sick patients, sick nuts like me, I was self-stepping every, I was the nuttiest one on the floor, by the way. I was self-stepping everybody that just in order to, you know, keep them going crazy, I started self-stepping all the nuts. Although they didn't need it. I needed them, that was true. And there was this guy who had cut his wrists, and I remembered Charlie <clears throat> would not have eaten had it not been to the fact that a few of his patients went around and fed him. There weren't enough nurses. And during the day when my fears got too big and when I lost my faith and replaced it with fear, and that would sometimes happen during that, during those ten days, I would suddenly think of Charlie, and God bless Charlie, he would let me talk to him about AA. I don't know whether he ever sobered up or not. I'm not sure that he was sincere, but it doesn't really matter. But God bless him, he saved my life, I'm sure, because he would let me go over and hold a cigarette to his mouth and he would talk to me, talk to me about let, let me talk to him about AA, and this is exactly what I needed. And so when we said that responsible pledge in Toronto, I suddenly thought of Charlie's hands, and then it came to me. Those beautiful hands of gifts weren't just the only hands of God. Probably, the closest you'll ever come, Barry, to the hands of God are the hands of the guy, those shapes, those chapped and shaking and dirty hands the hands of a drunk asking for help so we close this meeting with the Lord's Prayer I hope you remember that in effect you're holding my hand and in effect we're pledging together that we have hands we'll make hands available to all those other hands out there still shaking they are our responsibility. I would like them to have the kind of experience I've had today and I'm having this weekend. And that's the fulfillment of that mighty promise made to me the first day I came into AA. When the surgeon said to me, you'll never be alone again as long as you live. That was a beautiful promise and I thank you so much for making it come true for me today. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.